how many episodes do you have in your your like podcast? Like your oldest podcast you have? You must be what hundreds of episodes in. Um, the longest running podcast that I've been doing to date is Back to Work, which is a show I do with Merlin Mann. And we are up oh, to a... episode 552. Wow. Our first episode was January 18th, 2011. Wow. Yeah. That's a decade. Yeah. Yeah. A decade. Yeah. Well, that's, uh, how's, uh, how's all the remote working and pandemic impacted that topic wise? Or has that always been like the topic? Yeah. I mean, that's always kind or... of been the topic. I think it, um, I think it's been, you know, it's been interesting the way the pandemic has affected all of this stuff really. Um, because it it hasn't been in ways I would have predicted, you know, the way, you know, you would think a lot of people were listening to podcasts while they were commuting. Right. And so now they're not mm. commuting or they're for a while they weren't commuting at all. Yeah. So how would that have affected things? And it, it did. Um, you know, I think people's listening habits have really significantly changed, but then there's also people who had never listened to podcasts because they were at work with other people all day and, and now they're like alone in their house or their apartment. Uh, you can't sit in a coffee shop. You can't go anywhere for a lot of people or you couldn't. Yeah. So yeah. they turned to podcasts to kind of be the background noise, or the background sound or uh, the in-between sounds in between your Zooms. Yeah. Yeah. So what, uh, besides your own, I mean, like what, what's, uh, what's your favorite podcast? By the way, we started the podcast. I mean, yeah. This are, we, is, are we podcasting right now? Yeah, this is... Hi, Jason. Hi, Dan. Um, this is my favorite podcast. The one uh, we're doing right now. You're such a uh, sycophant. No, Amazing. it's true. This is the yes, only one I even listen to. It's the only one I listen to. You have a great proclivity to sycophant. <laughs> yeah. No, I, this is it. This is... Okay. It, it, gives, it has everything. It has it all. It has it all. Mm -hmm. Well, it's true. We talk about uh, cloud, edge, mobile... And stakes. With the addition of stakes, it, it became the only podcast that I needed. Uh, I'm not disagreeing. There's a, a podcast that I really can recommend, though. Oh, yeah? Which one's that? It's called Fall of Civilizations. Um, the last episode that he posted was back in June of 2021. So it's and they're they're few and far between and there's only a total of 13 episodes but it's wonderful it's wonderfully researched uh and basically what it does is it um it it is exactly what you think it would be it it explores what they describe it as it explores the collapse of different societies through history but it's so well produced the narration is fantastic and there's so much that uh, Paul, that I didn't Paul know. Paul Cooper's Fall of Civilization. Yeah, so this is really good. And uh, what the, you know, he talks about the Aztecs and what happened to them. But the one that really got me, the one that was really, really the most interesting to me was Easter Island, mm. because there is a mystery around Easter Island, and you know, they it was completely isolated, as you know. Yeah, and it survived for centuries and centuries and then all of a sudden it stopped and you know there are lots of theories and he talks about all of them and some of them are things i'd never never heard before so it's very cool very cool very fun educational podcast hmm. 
Yeah, my, uh, you know, my wife has listened to when we've been in the car, like traveling, mm -hmm. she'll listen to this. Uh, I think the name of the podcast is This Podcast Will Kill You. I've heard of that one. I haven't, I haven't listened. I know about that yeah, one. It's done by like two scientists and it's, it's surprisingly good as well. Like yeah. One of the episodes we were listening to was just this almost 350 year history of anti-vax movements. No kidding. Like back yeah. to the Spanish flu literally, and older. No, no. Like literally back to the debate about cowpox vaccine working for smallpox. I mean, like literally meaning, um, you know, going, going literally, um, uh, all the way back to, um, Edward Jenner's like cowpox vaccine. I mean, that's the, really the first one. And of course that was, you know, I mean, he died in the 1820s. No kidding. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, and you even, because you even look at things where uh, George Washington required all of his soldiers in the Revolutionary Army to be vaccinated against smallpox. And that was quite contentious in that period of time. Um, but, um, yeah, it's, it's one of these, like, literally as long as vaccines have existed, anti-vax movements have existed. And uh, the modern measles one was fascinating because it was... This whole idea that you have adulterated vaccines was actually the basis of a marketing campaign for one vaccine maker against another vaccine maker. They were basically saying their vaccine was quote unquote cleaner mm -hmm. than the other one. <laughs> and, but it is, it is funny when you start just thinking about then that literally, you know, a questionable marketing campaign between competitors led to almost this basis of some people thinking that today. Uh, it's very funny, um, but uh, but that's one that I've listened to uh, that one, and then my and probably my honestly my my guilty pleasure is that uh, I, I do listen to the Joe Rogan, Rogan podcast. Well, you know, I think yeah. I think that's a divisive one for a lot of people because he can get he has he has views he has views and opinions, but but the uh, but the, the guests are the, great. The quantity and quality of the guest, yeah are amazing. Like, yeah. Have you listened in the length of time, mm -hmm. you know, three and a half hour conversation. Right. I'm There's, not, you're like, not going to get that kind of thing anywhere else. So if, if, you know, no, like, yeah, cause I, you know, and I actually love all the ones of the, you know, all the physicists he has on like the Brian Cox one is just amazing. Um, so who's, who's of course a former, former rock star turned mm -hmm. Carl Sagan of, of England. <laughs> physicist um but uh but no but so you've been doing a podcast for 10 years five yeah it'll be it'll be 11 years episodes. in january yeah and how is merlin man doing he seems to be doing good up there in uh in san francisco yeah he's um just doing the same thing yeah he taught he mainly i think he podcasts most now i think when i when he and i first started he yeah. was doing a lot of talks He's for people who don't know who that is. He's the uh, creator. I, I guess that's the right word of in of Inbox Zero, among other things. He did forty three folders. Yeah, um, and uh, was the productivity guy. And companies would call him and say, "Come to our company and come to Pixar and give us a talk about productivity." And he would do that. And he was busy doing that when we first started. And since then, I think he's now. I think he's mainly just podcasting. 
You never and know. on and on that podcast with you too. I mean, he uh, um, he said before he has ADHD, right? Was oh, that, big that big time. That's one of his okay. uh, claims to fame is how he okay. like, and he's always been very open talking about that. Yeah, very very open. Yeah, and um, he a lot of the sort of productivity stuff that he does comes from a necessity to do that. Like his, the way that he follows his calendar, for example, Mm -hmm. um, is very to the, to the outside world. It would seem almost retentively attached to his calendar, but it's the thing that keeps him sane in a lot of ways. And there's a lot of wisdom in uh, coming out of that kind of, that kind of stuff. So it's really I mean, I learned something on that show. Not as much as I learned here, Jason. Come on. But oh, come on, just stop. I learned something. It's funny because, you know, I actually, one one time, um, I've always had a very, so I, I recall reading, uh, it was 43 Folders, right? That was the name of the blog? Yeah. Yeah. So I remember reading this blog in the early days. And then I was speaking at a conference, and I forget exactly where, but I was like hiding with my, handler in one of these like conference rooms back in a corner having lunch and a guy walked in and uh with like two of his people and was like oh you know sorry and i said no no we're just we're just hiding here eating i mean feel free to sit down and eat um and he's sitting there eating and i'm like ah oh, the guy looks sort of familiar and he was acting sort of cagey too <laughs> yeah you know cause sometimes when people um or I don't know, maybe famous. They can be a little like, oh, is this guy going to bring like something up? And then, you know, my handler was like, oh, you know, I don't want to interrupt, but um, um, are you David Allen? And he's like, yes, yes, I am. And, uh, and then I go, well, I'm not to sound uh, embarrassed, but I don't know who you are. After she said that, like, like, you know, I'm like, uh huh, uh huh, and he's like, oh, I've, he goes, I, I wrote a book called, you know, getting, getting things done. It's a personal productivity system, and, and I said, I said, um, uh, I've heard of that, but I thought, um, Merlin Mann did it because I've only ever heard about it on <laughs> his blog. <laughs> I said, are you guys like? That's what that's really what I said to David Allen <laughs> when I met him, and. uh that's great. Uh, and he's like, no, he's like, I, I wrote, you know, this is probably you know 10 years ago. He's like, no, I wrote my book 10 years ago. It's like literally, you know, like, like turn of this turn of the millennium, you know, like, right. like 2000 or something like that. I said, oh yeah, no, we, we, um, um, what's, what's the point of your system is what I literally said. And he went to this, uh, like, well, you know, it's about, how to be productive and not have stress and get your inbox down to zero and, you know, not to be, you know, distracted by things. And I said, I said, yeah, we, we've, uh, okay. Um, I said, I, I guess I've just never, um, had any of that as an issue. He's like, what do you, what do you mean? I said, I've always, um, you know, I like, I, I went to UCLA as an undergraduate and I've always been very scheduled and structured and I've always literally, I've always had, a clean inbox and I've always booked like my, my attitude's always been like, if it's not scheduled, it's not going to happen. If someone's not responsible for it, it's not going to happen. If I don't claim responsibility for it, it's not going to happen. Like, but uh, no, like I, I, ever since I was literally 
a child with a drill sergeant father, like I wake up and make my bed in the morning. You know, I, I, it's, it's like, I, I don't, and you know, it's always been funny for me is yeah, I just didn't, uh, I guess I said, oh, okay. So no, I, I, I just, um, never, never have really, I've never, I've never myself, like never really had a tremendous amount of stress around, uh, inbound things to me from other people, basically, mm -hmm. you know, I've, I've always, I've always sort of been able to, you know, I always have this, this way of like, okay, well, I'm going to just grind this out and get it done and then make sure too, that I'm not in this persistent state of people around me making things my fault or making things my responsibility when they're not, it's their responsibility to go and do that. Um, and, um, you know, but I can, but you know, what's what I, what I found most interesting about, and now, now I apologize again, cause I haven't really looked at what Merlin man's been up to since literally eight years ago. You know, I did find interesting about it was a pretty good insight into a lot of people that I had to manage and worked with me. Right. You know, because I, cause I think in particular when you head into the technology space and, you know, a range of, you know, sort of system administration people and a range of, you know, engineers, um, you do actually come across people that are very intelligent and really great in sort of like burst, but there's clearly elements where they may be somewhere on uh, the autism spectrum. They mm -hmm. may be somewhere on, you know, some attention deficit, you know, sort of thing and that type of thing. And, and it was always uh, good to sort of read that. But then, you know, the embarrassing thing I've always had is um, I didn't have any of that as an issue. I mean, probably the most extreme example of this was, Min Jung and I were living in San Francisco and it was um um like uh I'm trying to you know it was uh 2000 I think we were just oh you know what it was before we got it was the summer of 2007 cuz we got married in December 2007 mm -hmm. and it was the summer of 2007 and no 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 it had to have been before that because there was um, um, Min Jung's birthday is in April 2007, and she had a birthday party, and we had this young kid that was like was crashing on her her couch for a couple of days and coming around and hanging out and you know sort of showing up in the Bay Area, and he uh, MJ's birthday party we did it like in a nightclub in San Francisco was fully booked, and then like in the back. Um, in this whole sort of area, we let this kid um, launch his book at her birthday party, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, had all the books out there and he was like signing it and like hanging out. Um, and then, uh, you know, it was actually, um, um, you know, just coming around the apartment a lot. It was really a really nice guy, but it turned out, the, I mean, the book was The 4-Hour Workweek by Tim Ferriss. Oh, sure. <clears throat> and, you know, Tim, of course, is very... Um, you know, popular now. And then back in, so it's funny because back when, and of course he came to our wedding in December and it was nice, but then back in like that October and November was funny was um, uh, there was like a New York times article and, um, and then a series on like PBS and Tim asked if uh, um, I think the New York times article had like Mark Adresen, Myself and Jason DeFilippo. You remember Jason DeFilippo, right? He podcast, I think. 
I don't recognize that name. He did the uh, Metro Blogging Global Blog Network. Okay, and, I know what that is. Okay, sure. Uh, you, know, you remember Metro Blog? Yeah. Yeah, and then I think uh, I'm pretty... You know, you know, what's funny was you and Jason have almost this uh, um, parallel... I, I it would it would not surprise me if the two of you knew about each other but didn't really sort of like overlap. Right. So right. so you when you go and do something, you develop the software behind it, right? Sure. Usually. When Jason goes and does something, he develops the software behind it. Uh-huh. So he did like blog <laughs> he did like blogrolling.com. Oh, okay. Okay. Metro sure. blogging. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And then he uh stopped doing web development. I think it was at Yahoo too at one point. And mm-hmm. he also somewhat famously talked about aging out of being an engineer at cool places or you oh. know, something like that. Um, but he went into the podcasting space. So he, he's the, he's like, he does the uh, grumpy old geeks. I think is the podcast. <laughs> and then he ended up doing uh, things like the Kevin Rose show and the Tim Ferriss show from a production standpoint. That oh, type very of nice. Very nice. Yeah. 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 And uh, um, he also, we um so famously too is I'm pretty sure um so like on on wordpress.com I'm jason.wordpress.com mm-hmm. and I think Jason because it was always it was basically between me and Jason we were like the two Jasons mm-hmm. so depending on the platform one of us got like the Jason first um, and I think Jason DeFilippo got Jason at WordPress.com. And I think he gave it to Jason Shoop. And then Jason Shoop didn't really want it and he gave it to me. So uh and uh, I think we had a similar thing around who was gonna be Jason on Twitter. Cause you know, at the time it's like we were Twitter was a customer and you know, my roommate was like Kevin, who's at you know, we had like at K, at C, at T, oh, like yeah. we had we, yeah. you know, MJ's at MJ. You know, so like we know all the one letter, two letter people, you know, on, on Twitter and the people that got like their first names, like, you know, a, a Jack and a Yeah, a I Matt used to, and, I was Dan on Twitter and I changed yeah. it. I changed it because yeah. back in the ancient times, and I suspect this still goes on, yeah. people were, uh, they, they didn't understand how to tweet at someone. And so every day I would get yeah. hundreds, if not yeah. thousands of ad no, messages. No, it was, so it was, and we had a similar hot potato thing on who was going to be. So and now it's Jason Calcanus. I'm pretty uh-huh. sure it's Jason on Twitter, but he uh-huh. wasn't Jason on Twitter back then. Yeah. You know? yeah. Uh, and, um, you know, and, uh, um, um, yeah, because I ended up then going, I, 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 I thought about going down to just J. Oh, I didn't think you could have just the one letters. I guess you can. So you, you could internally. Yeah. It, it was an internal uh, thing. So literally like most of the people that were single letter were employees uh, were, employees or oh. friends of or a vendor to or you know or somebody like Tontech. Tontech is at T, I'm still pretty sure. Oh. Um but uh and Kevin's like at K. Um and then um uh you're right in the sense of like uh <coughs> uh at Jason was just terrible. Like why would she it was just it was one of these oh my God, why am I getting all this shit? Yeah, you're just asking um, for trouble if you do that. And so, uh, so I, I changed it and stuck an H on there. Um, but no, but that's but yeah, I mean, but that's uh, I think he's in the podcasting world. So you know, maybe the two of you don't really overlap because you you've been literally living in parallel 
universes. But if there's somebody that you probably want to ever sit around and if you ever had a compatriot out there that you could talk life experience over the last decade of being an engineer and being a developer and doing podcasting and doing that sort of yeah. probably Jason DeFilippo. Um, so yeah, just FYI. Um, yeah, but that, none of that's okay. So that's, that's all, sorry, we just went on a thing, but, uh, but yeah, but the, the 40 hour work week and it was, but the 40 hour work week is a f- funny example too, where, um, you know, I read the book and cause you know, clearly, you know, Tim, Tim gave us a, a copy of it and I read it. And then my feedback to Tim was, I was like, Oh no, I, I totally understand like who this is written for. Um, but I'm not your audience for right. this book. Right. However, I can truthfully say, um, that I support the elements of it that you're talking about here. Um, but I, I and I can, I'm perfectly happy to go say that for you and whatever thing to do and, you know, support it. But, um, I didn't learn it from this book. <laughs> So, uh, and, um, and so, yeah, I ended up doing like the, I think it was November, 2007 was in a New York times article. Yeah. Where it was like Jason, myself, and I think, uh, Mark Dreesen were the ones being, you know, you know, supporting the sort of concept and that type of thing. And then, um, um, there was, uh, one of the famous PBS shows, where like I was, it was like they had me and a UCLA psychology professor on. Talking like, about what? Uh, Tim Ferriss's forty-hour work or oh. four-hour work week. We were literally debating as to whether multitasking was a problem or not. And um, and uh, it was it was very, but it was funny because yeah, literally I think there was, uh, you know, probably about the first, um three big PR things like being you know, like New York times article about it being on P being on NPR, not PBS being on NPR. Um, yeah, I did it all to support Tim's book. Um, but again, it's one of these ones where in a very similar thing where I read Merlin Mann's thing, I read Tim book, I read this and I said, Oh, I, I could definitely see why more people should think this way. And it's, it's very good stuff. And as you said, like a lot of the things from even the Joe Rogan podcast in there, yeah. um, I find his guest exceptionally interesting, but then when you look at a bulk of the content for it, I'm not necessarily the audience for that. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, I'm not not really either, but the guests, like you said, the guests are varied and very interesting. Yeah. And I think, you know, what's, what's, what's pretty funny about the, like Joe Rogan himself is he manages to, it's a little bit like somebody sitting there and having a three hour conversation somebody who's really interesting where you actually get the impression that that is Joe Rogan. Like right. there's no act there. Right. Right. And you're almost, it's exactly like if you were just listening in on somebody having dinner with somebody else. Yeah. Like I, I literally think that if he wasn't recording it, it'd have the identical conversation with the person. You actually do get that impression. And there's a certain authenticity to that that's, that's nice. And then um, there's almost this, there's very much this every man quality to it where you know he'll go and ask questions or take things or challenge something where it's like oh i would never do that myself if i was talking to this person but then i sort of reflect why and it's like well because i'm also a phd trained scientist uh you know i'm also sort of here you know maybe i have a bias around this maybe i haven't thought about that sort of perspective um and so you know i I do find it formative from that that sense and so but i but i but i 
I, I tend to still sort of cherry pick it based on the guest. You know, if I look and I see some uh, crazy conspiracy theorist, or you look at like a Brazilian jiu-jitsu guy like Eddie Bravo, you know, the 10th planet jiu-jitsu. Interesting things, but, you know, I actually don't. Um, um, uh, I think he's fucking crazy because of, you know, it's sort of... Um, 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 conspiracy theory like viewpoints and then I think you know things like the rubber guard is is interesting but if you know how to deal with it it's not necessarily the most top tier of top tier sort of things but of course he's he's better doing his job than I am <laughs> I'm, I'm not I'm not saying that I'm meaning like literally if I went and wrestled with Eddie Bravo he'd him you know 99% chance he'd I know I, w- I would pay to see that um no I would yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah, I think that's fair. So I watched a uh, I've I watched a video of you. There's some kind of video that's uh, circulating. It's gone viral. Yeah, it's and, going viral. Okay. Yeah, it's gone viral. Yeah, and um, I think I would like for you to perhaps um, talk about that. And I was wondering if do we have permission uh to oh, rip the audio out of that and post that perhaps as a as an episode here on this stream is that something you think people would be interesting in this was yeah i think just linked to the, there's a oh you mean talking about me talking about what native edge applications yeah, might it be was um kind of it, it happened on i think it was this week's gsma's mobile world congress yeah but i put that up on youtube though you just it's on youtube but it. why you know people yeah. don't want to have to go to youtube we can keep them here keep them the, the idea the reason that that uh your other company facebook is so successful i think is because of your <laughs> philosophy to keep everyone there you don't want there's them to no, leave the platform there's no there's no facebook anymore oh i meant meta no i think facebook stays facebook and meta is everything else oh like how alphabet has google yeah i think that's what that is because oh. the or facebook one of the things see, that thought, Meta does is Facebook.com, I think is the way they're see, I, I think what I think what Mark Zuckerberg should do is just name the top-level holding company Ego. Just call it Ego.com. <laughs> I think it's taken. Is it? Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, you know Mark pretty well, right? Like, you hang out. You guys no. have hung out. Uh, we have. Yeah. Um, uh, back in the past, meaning when uh, Facebook was probably... When the Facebook office was still in the the old corner office at the end of University Avenue in Palo Alto, you know, which is where I think Palantir has been mm. since then. Mm-hmm. They were maybe 70 people and, you know, launching uh, the APIs and that kind of thing. I mean, we were a launch, we were the launch partner for that back then. So, uh, um, yeah, I mean, on the Facebook blog, they talked about Joint and Dell supporting their thing and making 3,000 systems available and all the cross-connects and all that stuff. And then part of it was going on the road. Um, but, um, uh, you know, we're typically like Mark Zuckerberg was speaking and then um, David, who was running the developer program at Facebook, would speak. I would speak, you know, so there was a bunch of roadshow-ish type things. The, the funny thing about that is then it also led to, remember when Google launched Open Social? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And we, we were like the open social partner for that. And I went on the, the road with Google for that as well. I we went to South Africa, Brazil, Argentina, Uruguay, went like all over the world talking about building open social apps. Um, but, uh, but the strategy for at least joining back then was just, um, you know, we had 
um, you know, if we hosted, you know, the APIs for things like Twitter and Facebook and and a number of things, and of course, it would attract people to come and be on our platform because they were doing things with those APIs, right? Um, and uh, you know, so we sort of had a lot of this type of uh, cross-connect and peering type concepts you would have in the network, but it was really around data interfaces. You know, people sharing data on, you know, essentially a a very fast, you know, no, no, and look, it was no different than what you would do where you had a bunch of uh, high frequency traders in the same data center and that kind of thing. It was sort mm-hmm. of that, that, that sort of thinking. And so, um, everybody that had an interesting API back then that we had as a customer, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, um, the open social API tier, you know, with Google, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And we, uh, I literally just hoard ourselves across all of those guys as partners. So, um, you know, it did at least. Now, my my only issue with, I think, at that period of time um, with, um, you know, Mark Zuckerberg <coughs> was, you know, that was um, 2007. Um, and so he was 22 or 23 years old at the time. Mm-hmm. And, just a kid, uh, just a boy. Yeah, so he's like a you know twenty three year old Harvard dropout, right? From a affluent background. I mean, I don't think his parents were poor. Um, you know, in that, you know, I mean, he went to like Philip Executor and that kind of thing. Um, you know, I was a <laughs> like bachelor's, two masters degree, PhD possessing <laughs> uh, scientific computing guy in my thirties. Uh, who came from a blue collar soldier cop background. Um, and uh, so when we would sit around in the green room or over meals, uh, it would take five or six seconds for us to realize that we were literally going to talk about nothing in common. You know, I mean, what am I going to say? You know, hey, you know, how to fill a drop out of college? Remember, <laughs> no, no, because remember, <laughs> Facebook was. Facebook had 8 million end users back then and it was a company of like 78 people. So, you, you, you know, as, as far as I know, you know, this, this 23 year old kid had just fucked his life doing one of the dumbest things I'd ever seen. Like, mm-hmm. why would you drop out of Harvard? Yeah. Just finish it. Yeah. You How know, long like, longer do you got to go? You kids nowadays, you can't can finish anything. Like, what's your problem? Like, right. literally, that's my mindset because, you know, like, I was just, I was just leaving things like an assistant professorship to go do, you know, quote unquote, Cloud computing, <laughs> right? Mean, it was like, yeah. so, you know, I had, I had, you know, my own things, but it was just like, God, you know, stay in fucking school, kid. Um, so I, I don't, I don't know, but that was a long time ago. I mean, uh, but, um, but, uh, yeah, but you can do the link wherever. I, I think it want. should be, what, you don't think it should be? I think it should be in there. It's up to you, man. I think it's important. It's, it's, I mean, you're, uh, I, I trust any of your editorial decisions. All right. Yeah. Well, there's other things here. Um, you know, we could we could uh, talk about a bunch of things, including like BT's public cloud strategy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that was uh, I think an article that uh, Ray put in Telecom TV recently, and um, uh, I mean Harman Meta, who's the chief digital innovation officer at BT. I mean, she was at um, Barty Airtel. Uh, before that, in a, in a um, I think she was a CIO 
mm-hmm. and CTO, uh, you know, of that. Uh, and uh, we'd at least met back when I was at Erickson. I think she was still at Barty. Um, well, let me let me interrupt you for a second because it, I see this a lot in the articles that come through to this show. Yeah. Um, you know, and they talk about running things in the cloud. They talk about transitioning to the cloud, regardless of whether it's public cloud, private cloud. Yeah. My question is, where were they before? What were they doing before? Are we talking about giant server rooms that they were hosting themselves? They were managing all of that infrastructure yeah, on their own. Is that is that sort of the legacy picture? Yeah, I mean, you take somewhere, take somebody like British Telecom, where mm-hmm. uh, do you remember, like, even when you would uh, use your iPhone not that long ago and my terminal. Yeah, your terminal. Mm-hmm, sure. You'd make a you'd make a phone call, and the phone call just didn't sound good. Yes, you know, like it, it even had this weird click. So, uh-huh. so the the telephony system that's out there was largely based on circuit switches, and some of those systems, um, you know, like we sold those systems out of Ericsson, and some of them literally go back to the 1970s, and they're still in production. And so, when things like 4G launched, the voice part of it would fall back to circuit switched voice. That was on very traditional telephony systems where you, know, you look at them, these are two post networking style racks and DC power. And I mean, they're like literally phone systems. Uh, and then part of doing things like, you know, because the other word for 4G is LTE and doing, you know, voice over LTE uh, meant doing like high definition, all digital voice that you were getting away from that type of circuit switching things. Mm-hmm. And so, literally, yeah, even. Six years ago, uh, even in certain markets today, um, there's all the old telephony stuff. And so it ranges from literally the types of systems you would see in the 1970s up into um, a lot of billing systems being on mainframes. Mm. Uh, you know, maybe somebody like AT&T's off their mainframe, but they were on a mainframe from a billing perspective, still right. in there. And then... A lot of IT systems and customer-facing systems around, you know, data messaging and that, that for convenience sake, were typically being bought like an appliance. Hmm. And so, you know, in the, in the operator space, you tend to historically have a lot of very vertically integrated, you know, long product cycle, you know, appliance style things you know, basically being consumed. And that's whether it be radio access largely is an appliance, the core network itself is an appliance, getting your billing system on a big-ass mainframe is basically a, a big appliance. Uh, but it's that sort of like appliance thinking, uh, you know, in there. Uh, and, um, yeah, it, it makes sense, particularly now that, you know, you look at things like AWS, I mean, they, they just grew 38% again. You know, they're, you know, I mean, they're going to be surpassing IBM and revenue and, okay. you know, that, that, that type of thing. I mean, now that, um, I mean, in the case of British Telecom, England has pretty much a network that's all centered around London. It's all north and south. There's not a lot of east and west, if at all. Uh, and um, Amazon has a presence there, uh, you know, I think in London and, of course, in Ireland. Um in that, so BT has an option of using things on the public cloud. I mean, the one, I think, question for, you know, particularly the operator space is most operators, their infrastructure has to be in the company they're operating. 
Um, and, um, you know, so when you look at all the countries in the world, you know, there's three, four, five, six dominant operators in that country, you know, there's 650-ish, you know, sort of, you know, um, operators out there of this. Um, and then you're going to find in the space that entire spectrum from you know, who, who's going to start doing like normal cloud things, you know, out there. So, so there, there, so there are still some countries and operators and that type of thing that candidly, they are doing stuff that, um, would have been obvious for you to do. Right. Um, 10, 13, 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. How much of what they're moving into the cloud, I know you were kind of addressing this in what you were just saying, but how much of what they're moving into the cloud needs to be redeveloped, re-engineered, rethought because it's written well, so in COBOL or whatever, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, yeah, so that's a, that's a very good question. And I, so I think a lot of the timing around them moving the cloud is not about, so there's very few examples of things that are being migrated to. Um, Does that so, mean it's all new that they're doing everything? All, yeah, yeah, because it, that's even the point of different generations. Right. So the generational cycle, 1G, 2G, 3G, 4G, 5G, mm-hmm. is that you know basically about every 10 years, there's a new G. So you know 4G rollouts were really happening from 2009 to now. Sure. Right, so you know 2019, mm-hmm. we'll say that. Starting 2019 to 2029, 5G rollouts will happen. Starting about 2029 to 2039, 6G rollouts will happen. So the, the generational time period in the operator space has been about a decade, 10 to 12 years per generation. And um, so, you know, when you're rolling out 5G right now, operators have 4G, 3G, and even 2G networks still in place. Um, I mean, like when we saw some of the, uh, uh so this isn't, this bre- isn't one so of those situations of the, when you saw one of the security breach issues that happened in T-Mobile US, yeah. that was, that was around my recollection is that was around like part of Sprint or T-Mobile's old 2G network. So, so you end up cause there, you know, cause, but the 2G network is being used for like feature phones that people just make phone calls on and they're being sold in these like prepackaged $40 phones, you know, mm-hmm. with a free, you know, free thing, you know, like burners, burner phones. Right. Uh, or IOT is on that network or the like. So, you know, operators end up dealing with a, um, a type of generational heterogeneity where, once something's deployed in an operator, it almost by default becomes the new legacy environment. Mm. And it may be there 20 to 40 years in the future. Wow. Right. Um, and um, that's how it's historically been. Right. So if you sit there and you say, even when LTE started being rolled out, from a voice perspective, it always fell back to circuit switched voice. Some of those systems in, in 2009, 2010, 2012, some of those systems were literally based on, say, Ericsson systems that were deployed in the 1970s. Um, and so I think it's just a... So what you're seeing now is as people move to 5G, 5G architectures is aggregated. It's meant to be cloud native. It's silly to run 5G on something other than a cloud. Mm-hmm. Right. So, you know, I mean, and it'll be the case with 6G. 
and so on like that. So I, so I just think it's one of these ones where um, the application turnover within the operator space is more on a cycle of about 12 years uh, minimum um, and, uh, you know, and the like. So if you go to a typical enterprise, I think um, the number I usually hear is something like uh, 10 to 15%. So one, there's more applications in a typical enterprise. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, you know, operators almost have these, like, here's the big core, here's the big RAND, here's our customer support system. I mean, they have, you know, here's our billing system. They tend to be these larger systems, uh, mm -hmm. you know, in that uh, and, and tend to sort of handle a different type of scale than, than, uh, you know, just a, a billing and then just sort of a, an old payroll app or something like that. Uh, and then, um, you know, typical thing in the enterprises, maybe 10 to 15% of their application portfolio turns over every year with a certain maximum. So like basically over a decade, you know, about 80, 85% of most applications within a company have been like redone or outsourced or moved to SaaS or something like that. And then you have some percent of things that stay, uh, you know, in that where the, the, and I'd say that, you know, my, 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 my thinking around legacy has always been the idea that um, if the replacement cost is higher than the maintenance cost, why would you do that? And so if the replacement cost is higher than the maintenance cost of an existing system, that's a legacy system. I mean, it's, 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 it's going to be there. Right. <laughs> so, um, and, so, so uh, I, I just wanted to kind of understand because, you know, a lot of this is new to me. Yeah. Yeah. No, it makes a lot, it makes a lot of sense. And I, and and I think it's just what, like, like, for example, like for a lay person like me, who's not in this industry, I would have thought that, so if I, if I go and I find some old, old phone, that's probably a bad example. Really old computer. And it yeah. has wi a Wi-Fi card in it. Yeah. It's going to work on my latest, greatest home yeah. mesh Wi-Fi system. It should, yeah. Yeah. As well as the latest, greatest computer, iPhone device, whatever I'm going to... Of course, that's going to work too. Yeah. But you're saying in the telco space, it's not like that. It, that there's actually no, different I'm infrastructure saying... supporting those things. Yeah. So I'm saying it is like that. It is like and that. It, and it is like that because, well, because you have to, um, um, I mean, there are people where you still have to support copper lined base telephones in their homes. Remember there's still people in the yeah. United States, for example, to make phone calls. on. Yeah. No, I've, I've heard about those people. Um, and so those backend systems still have to be developed and retooled and kept and serviced and everything else. Um, I mean, we would, um, we would sell like motherboard replacements and stuff for Ericsson systems where they were six to seven generations behind the current leading product that we would do. I mean, literally, you know, the, the sort of way that you have to think in the operator space when you ship a product is that that product that you're doing, depending on where it is, but there's parts of this infrastructure where that product may be present 40 years from now. And so you're actually coming up with 10, 12, 15, 20 year product cycles for that. 
Um, and that is a bit different. And, and part of it is because when you go, as you know, going and putting all this stuff in place is a lot of effort and it's very expensive. Mm-hmm. And um, um, just redoing it all. You know, if we sat down and said, let's redo the internet. Well, of course, you're not going to redo the internet. You're just going to sort of constantly add to it, right? Right. Um, but you have a similar thing where an operator, they're not going to redo everything they've done. They're going to be adding to it. And so there's just certain heterogeneity considerations and life cycle considerations and time frames and how this gets balanced and, you know, how, how, how you do that within a certain, you know, capital structure and the like that, that does make the way this industry does things particular to it. Um, and then, you know, a lot of the, and I think the, probably the simplest way to think about it, the way I'm going to explain it to CFOs, you know, quite, quite often, um, is that um, this type of generational technology thinking means that then you have generational unit economic improvements. Mm-hmm. So, and, and a good way to think about this is that if you have a one gigabit per second port in your computer and it costs you $100, right? as soon as a 10 gig port costs $100, you'll, you'll go ahead and upgrade, right? I would think but so. You're not gonna, but you're not going to upgrade from 1 gig to 10 gig if it goes from $100 to $10,000. No way. Yet in the very beginning of like that, those types of upgrades... It's not the same price. So what tends to happen is, you know, a, a little technology thing comes out, and I'll just use like this is an example where a one gig port costs a hundred dollars, and now a ten gig port comes out, and guess what? It costs a thousand dollars. It costs like ten times what that port, or maybe it costs a hundred times depending on what the technology is. And then there's certain people, small percent of the customer base that will buy that even though it's 10 times more expensive because maybe it goes in a high-frequency trading system that does trillions of dollars of like treasury transactions per day and they don't care about the per-unit cost of that port. They care less, right? Uh, because that system, you know, and so that's why, for example, whenever new networking technology comes out, it tends to be adopted by the scientific computing in the high-frequency trading space. They don't, they don't care about unit economics. They really don't. Uh, you know, if it allows you to go and transact on something you weren't able to transact at that speed before, and you want that, you'll go get that. If it allows you to go analyze an aspect of science that you've never been able to analyze before, then you're going to go do that. You know what I mean? Like the computational equivalent of making the Large Hadron Collider or mm-hmm. something like that. Mm-hmm. So there's always a niche population of the customer base that wants the latest and greatest because they're fundamentally not unit economic sensitive. What tends to even happen there, though, is that you know a one gig port becomes a ten gig port, and it used to cost a hundred dollars, now it costs a thousand dollars. But then, and that may be in the first like three years of that technology, and then over the next seven years, the unit economic may degrade down to like a hundred bucks. And you sit down and say, well, you know, you you see this in chips and servers where ten thousand dollar server, like the server always seems to cost 10,000 bucks and the switch always seems to cost $10,000. They always seem to cost the same, but it does 10 times more. Uh, and that occurs over 10 years is almost an easy way to think about it. Mm-hmm. That over 10 years, it does 10 times more. And, and the, the desire usually is a cost the same. Now, in the operator space, they'll basically do 
those upgrades of, oh, let's go from one to 10 to 100 to 1,000, and let's do it when the unit economics is the same. Right. And so they'll tend to do these types of 10x unit economic improvements every 10 years. Those are generationally improving unit economics. Uh, and uh, it's why, for example, the Greenfield Network will have better unit economics than one that's been existing for the last 10 years. Uh, and, um, you know, you get different sort of options in, in how you go and do that. Now, what you've seen in the cloud space is almost this concept of continuously improving unit economics, where the basis of that is matching this type of continuously swapping out and improving the underlying components and having like a complete approach that allows you to integrate CI, CD and continuously deploy and deliver your application on anything. So if it's super easy for you to redeploy on anything net new, it's super easy for you to be like continuously improving. So I think the easiest way to think about it is there, there are certain people that, that their technologies and their unit economics only improve on a generational basis. And then what's happened really largely in the cloud space is you have continuously improving unit economics on a much shorter time frame. It may be every year, every 18 months, every 24 months, but you're continuously improving. What people are doing in the, the telco domain is they want to go from generationally improving unit economics to continuously improving unit economics. And what you're seeing right now is a process where everybody's trying to determine what things will have to stay generationally improving and what things can become continuously improving. And the things that can become continuously improving are going to get that because they've adopted cloud and edge technologies. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. But that's but that's that's just the easiest way to think about it, man. Yeah, yeah, and it's funny because that's uh, you know the um, we literally talked about one article and made a very big point. I mean, we can almost wrap it there, Dan. <laughs> we could. Yeah. Yeah. Why don't we do that? Okay. Let's do it. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you very much for this week. I really appreciate it. I mean, we, um, we talked about a few things. I think, I think well, I mean, we, should... we meandered from the beginning. We got things done in a not getting things done way. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I really would like to take the audio from your talk and, and post it with your permission. I'd like to do that. It'll see, be sort of a bonus. The 15th episode will be that. Cause I think I thought it was really interesting. I think people uh, should be able to see your your luxurious hair, though. I don't know how we're going to facilitate video. that. It's in the YouTube video. There's a little video of me in the corner of it. No, I saw that. But I mean, if they're if they're just listeners, as they should be listeners of the show, and they yeah. want to hear the audio, you know, yeah. just imagine, imagine kind of a 1980s romance novel with the uh, the man with the very long luxurious hair. But imagine uh -huh. the hair gray, and they're talking about cloud edge, that kind of stuff. Oh yeah, that's what I mean. Where it's like I'm, I'm like the, the if 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 an old David Hasselhoff and yeah. middle aged Fabio would have a baby, <laughs> middle aged a middle aged Fabio, that would be uh, Fabio's still around, isn't he? He's got to be. I'm sure he's still kicking. Oh my god, he's 62. Hmm. Uh, here's a current picture of him. My God, this guy, this guy looks fantastic at 60. He's got the same fucking age. He's apparently been using a hyperbaric chamber to avoid aging. 
Oh, him and me both. <laughs> Mine looks exactly like, just like a regular bed, though. You would never know that it's hyperbaric. But does it work? Does that work? Didn't Michael Jackson use that? Um. So the uh, um, I, I think there's there's good ass. I mean, I, I mean, one of course, hyperbaric oxygen therapy is a well-established treatment for decompression sickness that you get from scuba diving and. And right, but like scuba that, diving right? isn't the same thing as um, aging. Well, what they started, and now we go on a, a medical tangent, but it started being used for, uh, you'll use it for carbon monoxide poisoning. Um, you know, there are people that um, get um, um, gang, like gangrenous, you know, like like a flesh-eating bacteria yeah. or gangrene, you know, where the, these tend to be anaerobic bacteria meaning they require living in an anaerobic space and then that's why they're it becomes a uh, flesh-eating bacteria like the skin becomes uh bubbly and crunchy because that's literally them releasing co2 because that's that's um in that so hyperbaric oxygen therapy is often used in f- flesh-eating and gangrenous things or wounds that won't heal because of that because the high amounts of oxygen kills anaerobic bacteria where anaerobic means can't grow in the presence of oxygen. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're different, you know, so sometimes it's used in carbon monoxide poisoning, uh, um, you know, different sort of infection scenarios and that, um, you know, there are, um, um, people that'll, um, start using it now for like longevity reasons, right? Where, you know, the, the idea being that, uh, for the basis of longevity, that it's helping you um, not to sort of increase the oxygen and sort of promote mitochondrial health, uh, you know, in your cells, but it also um, limits different forms of inflammation. And it's become pretty clear that inflammation and the inflammatory response uh, is the basis of a lot of problems in oh, humans. Yeah. I mean, so despite many. our uh, despite our immune system keeping us alive and that type of thing, it can go too far, you know, at times. And so, um, I'd say that uh, um, hyperbaric oxygen therapy, like cryotherapy, you know, where you cool the body either in a a bath of cool water or in nitrogen gas, um, that both of those are being used. Uh, in a in a non prescription way by people to basically limit inflammation for the purposes of better recovery from exercise or injury or that that type of thing, and um, that is um, thought to be uh, restorative. Thought to be, so, but is there is it? It is, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, the usual, it, it, it is. I mean, and I've done I, cryotherapy, hyperbaric therapy. I, I like it. I feel I feel energized after doing it. So you go into the um, thing and it, it um, it's like a, almost looks like an enclosed shower. Uh, you're basically just going into a chamber that allows you to have um, pure oxygen in air pressure that's about one and a half, two, maybe three times higher than... Are you standing? Are you laying in there? You're not talking about the nitrogen thing. You're talking about the hyperbaric. So the hyperbaric is oxygen. Um, And in that case, you're, you're typically laying down. I mean, laying down is meant to be uh, safe too, because some people might get dizzy. Sure. uh, You know, when it happens. Um, But um, 
Um, um, yeah, that's the goal. The goal is just to basically provide more oxygen under pressure uh, to a patient uh, to basically go and help things. I mean, it was, um, you know, developed in the early 1900s for, um, interestingly enough, um, this, uh, what was his name? Cunningham. I don't remember his first name, but this guy, Dr. Cunningham, I mean, used it to, um, I, I, I recall treat people with the Spanish flu. So, um, the hyperbaric chambers were used as a flu treatment. And then, um, um, and that, that's sort of the history of it being used in some degree, you know, some infectious diseases and that, that type of thing like that. Now, of course it was, it was used for things like the flu treatment and some respiratory disease in that period of time, because it wasn't really intubation and respirators and that type of stuff. Um, so it's just sort of a, you know, you think of the hyperbaric chamber as a close cousin to like an iron lung. Yeah, right, where an iron, an iron lung breathes for you too, but the other one just provides a pressurized environment where you're breathing pure oxygen. Right, um, it's being used for that, and then it um, it popped back up again in World War II, where the Navy started using it for decompression sickness, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. um, and um, and it was largely for you know it's largely like people that you know in port cities. Like I remember growing up in Long Beach, the emergency room there had hyperbaric. Um, chamber capabilities because you'd actually have people coming in from dive injuries being like flown in and then um, you know, they'd have the bends uh, you know in that um, and uh, and then the other thing you'd, you'd commonly see in there would be um, um, firefighters that or somebody that experienced carbon monoxide poisoning or some sort of smoke thing would be put in those environments so but now there's uh, yeah there's there's places where you can go local and just get it, uh, get it done, um, therapeutically. And then, yeah, as you said, the one that you stand vertically and do cryotherapy on that's using liquid nitrogen, which you cannot breathe. Uh, but, um, have you done that? I have. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of like, uh, I mean, I, I like, uh, I enjoy, you know, like saunas and jumping in a cold lake and, and uh, um, exercising out in the snow and that type of thing. I mean, I, I, I like that. And so, I mean, I've done, uh, I think anybody who grew up wrestling or playing football or lifting weights or doing anything else like that is familiar with, uh, you know, hopping into a, oh, yeah. a, metal, a metal tub full of ice uh-huh. uh, and um, using that to sort. So that's, that's always been pretty normal. I mean, I, I, mean, I, I have a preference to more like, get in a sauna for 30 minutes and then sit in a cold bath, like sit in ice cold water for 30 minutes um, versus uh, the liquid nitrogen cryotherapy is like cool, but you know, it's, it's three minutes and you feel cooler and that type of thing. And uh, you go and get it maybe 10 or 12 times, but I actually find that longer exposure to cold water is something that, uh, makes me actually feel better. I, yeah, it gets rid of any sort of joint pain. It does. I mean, it's, it's really a nice, nice sort of thing, but, but at the end of the day, it's about limiting, limiting inflammation, right? Right. Yeah. So, um, but, um, um, 
And they must have that. I mean, in Austin, I'm sure they have. Oh it. yeah, no, Joe Rogan I, lives in Austin. So one right around the corner from here, the cryogenic <laughs> one. I don't know about the hyperbaric one. I've never really thought. Yeah, about like that. I mean, I, I did. Uh, uh, there's a place down the street where it's a, a chiropractor, and he's got like a uh, um, woman that runs like the sort of sport stretching and massage thing. Mm-hmm. And he's actually the um, he's a former. Um, hammer thrower Olympian for the Swedish national team. And he was actually like the U S and England Olympic team coach for several Olympics. And he's normally when the Olympics are not going on, he's a chiropractor down the street. Oh, cool. Um, He's got a cryotherapy nitrogen thing there. And so there was a thing when, when I was training pretty hard where about, um, once, sometimes twice a week, depending on how I was feeling. They had a little package thing where, where like I'd drop the kids off to school. I'd walk over there. It'd take me uh, 20 minutes to walk there. And then I uh, should do like the sports stretch out, get everything stretched out, you know, and like, you know, sort of like, okay, that feels, you know, meaning like help me stretch a hamstring in a way I wasn't able to. Oh yeah. 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 Uh, you know, really sort of get in there and, uh, uh, get, uh, you know, the psoasis sort of like, you know, loosened up. And then I'd finish that by hopping into the cryo thing at, you know, like max fucking low temperature for three to four minutes. And then, um, put my sweats back on and walk back home. And that was literally, I tell you that basically that morning walk plus the stretch out plus, you know, the cryotherapy on that, um, it did, that was like the equivalent of taking two to three days off from working out. Like I was, I was I literally, I was ready to go that yeah. afternoon again. Yeah. So that, that, that is actually pretty nice. And that so then, much, that much help with inflammation and restorative power. That's yeah. It's impressive. almost, it's almost like, you know, you stretch it out and you get the certain feeling of stretching and this mm-hmm. and that. And then it's almost like mentally, it's almost like you get into the cold and it like freezes it in place. <laughs> you, know, oh. it. <laughs> uh, you know what I mean? It's like, it, but it's, it's, um, um, but I found for example that, um, and I, you know, and I, and I, I probably will at some point now that it, they've gotten better out, I'll probably buy a cold bath for the house sometime. Um, you know, meaning something that's like 15 degrees Celsius type stuff. Whenever I go to Korea, you know, I'll go to somewhere like the, uh, there's like a man spa on the bottom of the, uh, Ramada that's there. Um, and, um, you know, they have, you know, baths with, you know, a range of five different, literally almost boiling hot down to almost freezing. Mm. And then spas that go from wet to dry and that sort of whole range. Uh, my general thing is like, I go take a shower there and then, uh, hit the wet spa, you know, where it's a lower temperature, but it's super humid and it just fucking brutalizes you. And then I just, I go and I'll spend 10, 15 minutes in there. And then I get in the like almost fucking frozen Arctic pool for 10 to 15 minutes. And then I go back in the spa and I'll, I'll do that for back and forth. I'll do that three, four five times for like an hour. And, uh, that like, that syncs up my, my clock for the time zone. It gets rid of any sort of aches and pains from that's the airplane. A handy, handy tip. Yeah. I mean, it's like, um, um, so I'm, I'm a, you know, I'm a big fan of just, 
of, um, but it's, it's always funny because people sit around and it's like, yeah, look, but you say rest, ice, compression, elevation, right? And it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So what's wrong with like putting your feet up or wearing compressed socks or resting and then taking a hot shower, then an ice bath? Like, how's that? How's this all a bad idea? <laughs> I mean, um, so, but I think the, um, um, a lot of the, the, the cryotherapy, I think you just got to figure out what your own timing is around it. I mean, I think uh, sitting there and doing eight, nine, ten sessions and the nitrogen thing is uh, should give you a good idea, you know, of that. Mm-hmm. Um, you might find that, you know, when you sort of train and you're maybe on your third or fourth week of a cycle, you know, where you're like tired, you're like in sort of a deload week. Yeah. You may find that... Um, doing it just once or twice in your deload week, you know, meaning you're doing it once or twice a month mm-hmm. is, is restorative. Um, so I, I'll know cause I, I'll typically work on a three weeks on one week deload sort of cycle of things. And then usually in the deload week, if I do anything restorative, it tends to have the most impact there. You know what I mean? Absolutely. So, um, okay. Okay. Uh, yeah, and of course that's, we ended the podcast a while ago, but I think this stays in it. <laughs> you don't think they want that? You can do whatever you want. Dude. I think I it mean, stays in I, I enjoyed that part of it. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're, you know, you're the editorial guy. I mean, okay. Any, I'm keeping any, it. Keeping it in. I, I just want to, you know, people can hit, this is the thing. People are so powerful. Check this out. If they're listening, they don't like it. They can hit stop. They can hit fast forward. Like they're in control. Yeah. Now, I, I just want to say that this podcast provides general information and discussion about health and related subjects. The information and other content provided in this podcast are not intended, should not be considered or used as a substitute for medical device, medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. This podcast does not constitute the practice of any medical, <laughs> nursing, and professional health care advice, diagnosis, or treatment. And we cannot diagnose, prognose conditions, or provide second opinions, or make or nor are we making specific therapeutic recommendations to any of our listeners. And uh, <laughs> with, with, with that, I want to encourage everybody to never disregard professional medical advice. Oh my gosh. Nor delay in seeking it um, because of something you've perhaps heard in this podcast. And that goes for that- you. For what I say, I think everyone <laughs> should follow it. Everyone, universally. That makes a ton of sense. And here's right. my here's my advice: drink more water. Uh, that's that's great advice for a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. and that's my yeah. medical advice. Yeah, but just not more than sixteen liters in a day, because for the average person, that will cause sixteen cancer. liters. Yeah, sixteen liters is about twelve to sixteen, but sixteen is about where people hit their um, where it's like on average for a person of average size and weight, sixteen liters is a bad idea. I was just gonna, how do you even get close to 16 liters? I have done days that I do stuff. I mean, I, I'll, I'll drink eight to 12. Jeez. Yeah. Hold um, on, let me see how much this can, hold on a second. Hold on a second. Let's see how much this guy can even I mean, fit. That's, I mean, 16 liters is four gallons. This is like 32 ounces in this thing. I'm lucky to get through one, two of these a day. That's in liters. If 16 liters, that would be... Almost 600 fluid ounces. Who has time for that? Who's doing that? 
Like, do you just, how, I mean, it's like you're chain smoking the water basically. Um, so people will, uh, um, so, cause what you end up with is you end up with a thing called hypo. Do you just stay in the bathroom at all times? Just constant no, no, they're, drinking they're people, and urinating it all like an endless cycle. No. So the, the problem is, um, I gotta being, drink, I'm going to drink more right so now. The, 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 the problem when you're dehydrated, you can get hypernatremia, which is an increase in salt concentrations. How do I when know if I have that? Now I'm worried I have no, that. You don't, you don't, you don't. Uh, when you're, um, under when you're overhydrated, you get hyponatremia. Now, the one of the problems is hyponatremia and hypernatremia have very similar um, sem- symptoms and signs and symptoms. Right, um, but it's so, easy to tell which one you have. You say, "Have you drank no, three hundred bottles so the most of water?" Common thing is you look at you look at people running a marathon. So typically, when people get on the other side of a marathon, yeah, the typical person is dehydrated. And they have hypernatremia, and if they're showing signs and symptoms of something, they go into the medical tent and they put in an IV and they give them fluids, where they're trying to get their fluid levels up and get their sodium levels down. Every now and then, though, somebody comes and does that. They put the IV in, and the person dies. And the reason why is because that person was over drinking while mm. doing the marathon. Interesting. Um, and so sometimes when people. When you put people in stressful situations where they're outside of the bounds of like uh, normal input and that kind of thing, right? But when you put people in stressful situations, running a marathon, running long distances, then um, that that's when they may make mistakes on either overhydrating, underhydrating. They might be doing this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are people that'll sit down and say like, oh, "Okay," because um, I've done a lot of stuff in in, in longer term endurance things that I do. I'll go and keep track of what the external temperature is. And then um, <clears throat> I'll weigh myself before and after. And then I'll do, uh, like, let's say if it's a, let's say when I was doing like 100, 200 mile bike rides, um, in the first, in the beginning, I'd sit down and pick days that were of the same um, temperature. Mm-hmm. externally right so go the same time of day same temperature weigh myself before and after and then i'd have runs where i'd go and do a four four hour ride six hour ride but i wouldn't drink any water or eat anything the entire time then i'd do ones where i'd drink uh you know uh, uh a drink you know um 200 or 300 milliliters an hour and then i'd drink 500 and i'd drink like 800 and um <clears throat> And then um, basically look at where's your cutoff point within a given temperature where um, you're able to not lose a lot of water weight. You're not able to lose more than 2% or 3% of your weight in water, but you're not drinking so much that you're having to urinate a lot. You know what I mean? Uh, And what I find is different people can vary where some people can get by on 400 milliliters. Some people Mm -hmm. need 800 milliliters. Some people need a liter. But it's a good idea to get an idea of where you sit and that sort of 2x variation that can occur uh, in how much you need to get hydrated, you know, in that. And then there are things where, um, you know, um, you know, like I, I've been historically a big fan of a, a thing called a salt stick, uh, which is just a combination of sodium and potassium and, and, um, 
uh, magnesium and calcium all in one little thing and you can take it as a tablet or you can add it to your water. Um, what's nice about the the liquid version of it then is that I always encourage people to do something where you do an experiment in low, medium, high temperature ranges and you do an experiment of almost low, medium, high liquid and then you do sort of almost this question of how does that relate to electrolyte consumption at the same time as well? Right. Because what you'll find, for example, is sometimes you need more water because you think you need more water, but it's really because you're, you know, you're having an electrolyte issue and, you know, that, that, that kind of thing. So I always do these types of matrix experiments, you know, for certain endurance activity. Uh, and it's important to do it, to redo it if you lose or gain 20 pounds you know, sure. sort of as well. In there, but it's a good idea to get an example of at a given temperature, how how much do I sweat and what's my electrolyte loss, um, and and you can do it very scientifically if you want to look at things like uh, the osmolality of your saliva. Uh, you can start looking at um, you know there are even these really good devices now that you can buy that measures that, and then you can put patches on sort of the inside of your forearms and stuff that collects all your sweat and send it away for electrolyte well, analysis like in Dune, and that kind like of the thing. suits uh, in Dune, still yeah. suits um but there's a but generally i think if anybody who's gonna i think if you're gonna um do any sort of activity that um is in you know if you're if you're sitting at somewhere like 16 to 20 degrees celsius from an outdoor temperature perspective meaning on the order of like 65 to 72 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, if you're sitting at that temperature and doing a physical activity that's less than two to three hours, you don't have to do any of this. Right. If you're doing a physical activity that's greater than three hours and it's at a temperature lower or higher than that range, mm -hmm. then you should determine that for you and your current state in that sort of activity that you're going to try to do over and over and over again what your hydration and electrolyte needs are in hour one, hour two, hour three, hour four, hour five, hour six, hour seven, hour eight, you know, like that. Because once you start going on eight-hour bike rides, 12-hour bike rides, 16-hour bike rides, 20-hour bike rides, once you're going on eight-hour, 12-hour, 16-hour runs, uh, you know, in that, <clears throat> um, it's, it's a good idea to know these things so that you don't end up in a weird spot. Because the way the human body is, is like it's fine until it isn't. It's actually a pretty resilient thing. <laughs> right. And so, you know, the, the challenge with that is learning from those own inputs and thinking like what, what's okay for you or not. Yeah. You know, because you may be somebody where you're totally fine and you're like, I don't need any water. And then all of a sudden you like, you collapse because now you do need water. Right. <laughs> um, you know, we have these, you know, cause uh, you know, and it's a similar thing where I feel great and you like crash. Right. And, um, um, that's the kind of system we are, but, but mentally we act as if we're in this like very sort of like linear thing, but we're not, we're in this very adaptive system. That's basically holding on or just collapsed and you're in a bad spot. Right. Uh, and, uh, so I think if you're doing anything like that, it's a good idea. I mean, look, if you go and you lift weights, you'll tell people, <clears throat> um, Hey, let's put some weight on and let's see how many times you can lift it until I have to like help you with the bar. Okay, you know, let's take a little, let's put a little more weight on, let's see this. 
and you end up with sort of a, a curve where you go, okay, um, you lifted that 10 times, now you lifted that eight times, now you lifted that six times, it degraded like this. Now we have a curve where we know probably what you're, probably what you'd lift if you could lift one time, right? So you look at your RM1, your RM2, your RM3, your RM this. And then that also tends to, depending on the lift, it correlates to the velocity at which you move that bar. You know, so, you know, meaning something that you can typically lift 10 times um, um, is something that's about 70% of the maximum weight you can lift. And you're typically going to move that at about 0.56 meters per second. So you could come to that determination there in any one of a number of ways. Um, and, um, you know, you can sit down and just measure the velocity of it and say, okay, that's probably what it is. Um, but, you know, let's measure it a few times and see if you can make it go faster. Uh, you know, or you can sit down and say, okay, well, let's, I'm going to keep on lifting until I can only lift something one time. And then I'll do the math from there. Um, you know, or you can start on the other end and lift something a bunch of times and then make it heavier until you know, you're about it. And you're like, well, I... I know that's something I can lift 10 times because I lifted it 10 times. Right. Um, and I've done it more than once. This has happened over the last like two weeks. And um, <clears throat> so just like how you go and you do that with a weight, um, it's important to do that with particularly water and electrolytes. You know, what's your hydration input and output and, 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 and that type of thing. And it does, it does, like I said, correlate with besides your, your general health, you know, also your, your body composition and, of course, the outdoor temperature. Right. Um, but, uh, but yeah. Yeah, I guess the moral of the story is anything, anything that allows you to give a better insight into understanding how you feel and what you need is good. You know what I mean? Absolutely. So, all right, sir, I'm going to, Hop on to another meeting. Very Thank well. You. Have an excellent uh, day. And people who are still listening. Oh, yeah, yeah. So that's right. You want to keep it in. That's I want to keep this. Yeah, I'm keeping it. Okay. Uh, people, they can follow you, Jason, or Jason H. Twitter. On yeah. Twitter, I'm at Dan Benjamin everywhere. And of course, please visit livingontheedge.show. You can uh, click contact, send us your contact feedback. You can see the many, many news stories, links, and notes that uh, are there waiting for you. Livingontheedge.show slash 14. Great. So uh, until next week, Jason, have a good one. You too, Dan. Thank you.